Good morning. Welcome to NTD. Good morning. Here are our top stories. Final GOP presidential candidates clash over electability and policies in the fourth 2024 primary debate. Who made the biggest impression amid the squabbling? We have analysis and takeaways. Former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is leaving Congress entirely. The longtime representative will say goodbye to the House in just a few weeks. Congressman Jamal Bowman pleaded guilty to falsely pulling a House fire alarm back in September. The lawmaker now faces a censure vote by his peers. We take a closer look at that. With time running out before recess, senators block an aid bill for Israel and Ukraine. Find out what both sides want out of the measure. Multiple shooting victims at a Las Vegas university hear one student who was there tell us his story. First son Hunter Biden taking heat as an IRS whistleblower sounds the alarm on millions of dollars the younger Biden allegedly got from a lawyer. And we take a look at a father from California who's showing his sons the power of kindness by leading through example. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome. Today is Thursday, December 7th. And you know, before we start, Evelyn, Congressman McCarthy, 17 years in a single house seat. That's a good run. And you know what's ironic about it is that he actually was denied an internship for the same office before doing that. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, no matter if you agree with his policies, he actually just... Um, uh, wrote an op-ed in the Washington Journal, uh, WSJ. So I think, I think it was, in his eyes, he was actually saying that the more it seems that Washington does, the worse America gets or something. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, it's a similar Republican line, you know, smaller government. He talks about the family, too, and he makes a good point, and he quotes Reagan. And Reagan yeah. said, all great change in America starts at the dinner table. And McCarthy's saying he sees the goodness in the American people. It just it all goes to show the importance of strong values in building a great nation. Yeah, he was saying that the, the, the solution for America that ails America seems to be lying in everyday men and women. So yeah, I, I thought that was um, my similar takeaway. But today um, we are talking about the top news about the Republican presidential candidates hoping to take on former President Trump. They battled it out in the fourth primary debate last night. News Nation hosted the event at Tuscaloosa's University of Alabama. The four GOP hopefuls told voters why they should be considered a viable alternative to the dominant frontrunner. Former President Trump skipped the event and used his own means to reach voters. He attended a fundraiser in Florida for his super PAC instead. One main theme contested was policy. Iowa's caucuses are less than six weeks out, and the narrowing field gave those left on stage more room to speak and scrutinize each other. And today's Jeremy Sandberg has takeaways from the GOP debate. GOP candidates vying for second place in the polls tried to chip away at the no-show frontrunner's lead in their appeals to voters Wednesday night. The fact of the matter is, he is unfit to be president. Rivals weren't taking any chances with former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley on a recent hot streak. Candidates up here like Nikki Haley, she caves 
anytime the left comes after. Nikki Haley, who thinks the government should identify every one of those individuals with an ID, that is not freedom, that is fascism, and she should come nowhere near the levers of power, let alone the White House. And I love all the attention, fellas. Thank you for that. DeSantis dug in on Chinese regime connections, accusing Haley of being the top ranked among governors when it came to bringing the Chinese Communist Party into a state. Her donors, these Wall Street liberal donors, they make money in China. They are not going to let her be tough on China, and she will cave to the donors. She will not stand up for you. First of all, he's mad because those Wall Street donors used to support him, and now they support me. Issues ranging from border security, immigration, foreign affairs, COVID vaccines, and election integrity were also hit on throughout the night, not shy of personal attacks. Nikki, I don't have a woman problem. You have a corruption problem. And I think that that's what people need to know. Haley said as UN ambassador, she was hands-on when it comes to China and Taiwan. She said the way to keep the Chinese regime away from them is to let them know there'll be hell to pay by winning the war in Ukraine. Chris, your version of foreign policy experience was closing a bridge from New Jersey to New York. Yeah. So do everybody a favor, just walk yourself yeah. off that stage, enjoy a nice meal, yeah. and get the hell out of this yeah, race. Yeah, yeah. Vivek Ramaswamy led speaking time once again in the News Nation hosted debate, defending former President Trump in his absence. All three of them have been licking Donald Trump's boots for years for money and endorsements. Contender Chris Christie claiming to be the only one brave enough to chastise Trump. This is an angry, bitter man who now wants to be back as president because he wants to exact retribution. The fifth guy who doesn't have the guts to show up and stand here the battle over electability will continue, with Trump currently leading most opinion polls by more than 40 percentage points. Ramaswamy is calling for the fifth debate to be held on X. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Okay, let's pick apart the candidates' performances with Aaron Call, the director of debate for the University of Michigan Debate Program. Aaron, so glad that you can bring your experience to the table here this morning. Which candidate stood out the most to you last night? Yeah, I thought it was, again, uh, DeSantis and Haley probably were the top two. And uh, give a slight nod to DeSantis, just given the, the stakes coming into the debate. Uh, he just had a, another good performance with Gavin Newsom, and he really showed the advantages of incumbency since he's the only you know, sitting governor amongst the four candidates. And he talked about all these different policies and things he'd done in Florida, which just gave him a little bit better, uh, um, an advantage or not over the other three. What was the single part of DeSantis's spiel that stood out most to you? Yeah, I think it, it, it's him continuing to talk about the success he's had in Florida. He was supposed to be kind of a red wave in 2022, and uh, yet the Democrats picked up a seat uh, in the Senate and the House, only uh, a few seats for the Republicans. But DeSantis had this big wave election in Florida where he won about, by about 20 points, which was a big increase from uh, 2018. And so, you know, trying to export that model nationally uh, is something that's a, a persuasive message in addition to things he's done in the state on China and some of the other hot button social issues that we talked about last night. So you talk about candidates presenting their record, which of course is very important in this circumstance. I want to play a clip last night involving an exchange between Christie and Ramaswamy and get your reaction. Watch this. And while we disagree about some issues, what we don't disagree on is this is a smart, accomplished woman. So was Governor Christie's, former Governor Christie's decision to use some of his airtime to defend Haley from Ramaswamy's attacks and wise use of time or was this just something that he could have used to talk about his policies instead? 
No, I think it was a wise use, and you know, judging by the crowd reaction, they appreciated him doing that. And Ramaswamy continues to be kind of the villain in these debates, getting the most airtime, but also um, increasing his unfavorables. And, and kind of as people see him more, they seem to like him less in the polls. So, no, it was um, admirable for him to do, and kind of it was an alliance between uh, Haley and Christie. And, you know, depending on how much longer Christie's in the race, he barely qualified for this debate. Eventually, it wouldn't be a surprise if he endorses Haley. They you know, their positions are, are pretty similar and they made a good, you know, a good team last night on the debate stage. So can you unpack a little bit more of the psychology of debates? Of course, there's policy issues that are important, but maybe is this a way for Christie to show, to suggest to voters that he will stand up if he sees some perceived injustice? Yeah, and he's been a little bit inconsistent in these debates, um, especially kind of the first one in Milwaukee, then Simi Valley. He did much better in 2015-16 when he ran. But uh, definitely had a better performance last night and went on the offense more against uh, Donald Trump, who obviously wasn't there again. But it's yet to be seen if that kind of strategy is going to be successful for the Republican base. It didn't seem uh, so from the reactions last night. The crowd didn't seem to want to relitigate Trump and kind of audibly booed him when he when he took that. But he definitely has a lane that's a little bit more moderate, and he thinks uh, Trump has been disqualified for president. And he's you know, very strong in his convictions. He's a former prosecutor. He's a governor in a blue state. But his message is really not catching on uh, with the larger base of the Republican Party. And that shows in national polling and even in the early states like New Hampshire, where he used to be second. Nikki Haley, through a positive performance in these debates, has stolen a little bit of his thunder um, and, and taken that lane and kind of run with it. Yeah, and that whole exchange there with Christie coming to Haley's rescue was a result of Ramaswamy criticizing Haley for not being able to purportedly name three provinces in, in Ukraine where she would sent troops, according to Ramaswamy, which seems very unlikely given her foreign policy experience. So based purely on debate principles, who won in your view? I give a slight nod to, to DeSantis. He kind of didn't get into the, the back and forth with Ramaswamy, wasn't as tacked as, as much as Haley, some of the other candidates. We saw some new attacks debuted against uh, Haley last night about kind of the, some of the recent funding of more liberal donors and um, her uh, position when after being governor, just kind of in some private companies, which, you know, Ramaswamy said was kind of a form of corruption or showed that she kowtowed to donors. And so, you know, Haley took a little bit more hits and um, DeSantis was able to escape some of those, be above the fray. And again, pointed to kind of the things that he's doing now where all the other candidates are kind of former politicians. And so action sometimes is, you know, is, is a virtue and rewarded by the voters. But it's yet to be seen of, of what the, the voters think, how big the ratings are. So far, Haley's benefited the most from these debates. She's had another solid performance. And so, you know, her ascension may continue as well. Always appreciate the insight. Aaron Call, Director of Debate, University of Michigan. Thank you. Anytime. How does the race stand according to the polls? Let's take a look at recent polling in Iowa. The average shows former President Trump still has a commanding lead at 47 percent, but anything goes in the caucus state. A voter can flip from one candidate to another right on the spot. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis maintains a distant second at just over 17 percent. He's getting huge support from his super PAC, which has invested heavily in his Iowa campaign. DeSantis is the only one to visit all 99 counties in the state. Catching up to DeSantis is former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley at 14 percent. We'll see what happens to her numbers after last night's debate on whether she can become Trump's top competitor. Next is Vivek Ramaswamy staying at 5 percent and Chris Christie now at 4 percent. 
New Hampshire holds the first official presidential primary election a week after Iowa on January 23rd. Trump in the lead all along by a lot. He's at over 45 percent. Nikki Haley has been leading the race for second place since late September at nearly 19 percent. And former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie gaining some steam with 11 percent in the third spot. DeSantis in fourth place with 7.7 percent and Ramaswamy is following closely at 7 percent. In the general election matchup, Trump and DeSantis have small leads on President Biden. Two points for Trump and one point for DeSantis. But those are within the margin of error, so we can call it a tie. Only Haley is pulling outside the margin of error with a 5% lead. We're looking to see how this will change after last night's GOP debate. So Super Tuesday is scheduled for March 5th. That's 90 days away. Over a dozen states will hold primaries, including the two with the most delegates, Texas and California. And that's the day after Trump's federal election trial begins in D.C. Judge Tanya Chapkin has so far refused to reschedule. Longtime Congressman Kevin McCarthy is leaving the House of Representatives in just a few weeks. The former speaker says he'll still help where he can, but from the sidelines. Here's what the Republican congressman had to say in his resignation announcement yesterday. While well, I'll be departing the House at the end of this year, I will never, ever give up fighting for this country that I love so much. We were willing to risk it all, no matter the odds, no matter the personal cost. McCarthy did not say why he's leaving Congress at the end of the year, but he did say he would continue working on his passion in a new area by leading the next generation of leaders, as he calls it, as well as helping the Republican Party recruit and fundraise. McCarthy's move comes just two months after he was ousted from his speakership position because there were Republicans who were unhappy that he worked with Democrats on a temporary government funding bill. That's an issue that is still very much alive and that current Speaker Mike Johnson is now facing. With McCarthy leaving, the slim Republican majority is getting even slimmer. That's after former Congressman George Santos was just expelled last week because of allegations he faces. It is expected that a Republican will take McCarthy's seat because he does represent a very bright red district in California, but it will take a few months to fill that slot after California's governor calls for a special election. The House advanced a resolution to censure New York Congressman Jamal Bowman over the a fire alarm incident. Yesterday, the House voted down a Democratic motion to set aside the resolution. The House is expected to vote on the censure resolution sometime today. Bowman was caught on tape pulling a fire alarm in September at the Cannon House office building. He did it as the House was scheduled to vote on a government funding bill. Bowman said it was an accident, but later pleaded guilty to a misdemeanor charge for falsely triggering a fire alarm in a House office building. A censure is an official public reprimand carrying no further consequences. Coming up, multiple shooting victims at a Las Vegas university. We have the latest. And the Senate blocks an aid bill for Israel and Ukraine. Hear what both sides want in the bill as time ticks down for the Senate to make a decision. The Israel Defense Forces make a significant discovery right near a school in the Gaza Strip, and a father explains how his family pet comforted his daughter in Hamas captivity. Jason Perry reports. 
The U.S. says it expects a transition period in Gaza after the conflict ends. Hear the State Department's position on the Israeli military's post-war presence when we come back. Good to have you back. A gunman killed three people and wounded a fourth yesterday at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Authorities say he was then killed in a shootout with police. Reports of shots fired sent police swarming onto the campus while students and professors barricaded themselves inside classrooms and dorm rooms. Once the 911 call came in, police rushed to the scene and were there quickly. The shooter was outside Beam Hall, a dormitory there. Right across the street was the student union where a meeting was being held. Some students received warning information via social media and went into lockdown mode. We got a notification. A lot of us were following on, on X what was kind of happening. Uh, then we received a notification that uh, the shooter or shooters were at the student union, which is where we were. Um, and so we just, you know, stay quiet, stay right there um, until the SWAT team uh, came in and were able to uh, evacuate us. Students hiding in the student union experienced a further scare when someone tested their locked door. There's some scary times when um, somebody, you know, tried to open the door and we weren't sure if it was the shooter or if it was the, the police. Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department Sheriff Kevin McMahill said the quick actions of two officers probably saved others' lives. At that moment, there were students in front of the building playing games and eating. UNLV campus police responded to the scene and engaged the suspect immediately right outside of Beam Hall. LVMPD officers also responded simultaneously. I can tell you today, three of the victims are confirmed deceased. There is a fourth victim who suffered a gunshot wound and is now currently in Sunrise Hospital, upgraded to stable condition. Police led the other students to safety. Senate Leader Chuck Schumer provided some perspective into the frequency of shootings in the United States. You know there are more acts of gun violence, mass shootings, than there are days this year in the calendar. And unfortunately, just to almost prove that's true on this day, just this afternoon, we learned about another shooting near the campus at UNLV in Nevada. Authorities say the motive for the shootings is unknown at this time. Victims' names are being withheld until next of kin notifications. Sources have told multiple media outlets that the shooter was a college professor. Entity couldn't independently verify those reports. And money is the talk of Washington this week, specifically funding to provide more aid for Israel and Ukraine. On Monday, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said we're running out of money and we are nearly out of time. And yesterday, President Biden and the Senate weighed in. While Ukraine continues its fight against Russia, in Washington, Congress is fighting itself, with lawmakers failing to agree on how to extend aid to Ukraine. The Ukrainians have had to start rationing their munitions, as any sensible army would, because they simply don't want to run out. 
$111 billion Congress already sent Ukraine is nearly gone. The Biden administration proposes sending about another $60 billion to Ukraine and $46 billion more to Israel, Taiwan, and operations at the U.S. southern border. We can't let Putin win. President Biden backed the bill hours before a procedural Senate vote, criticizing the Republicans expected to sink it. History's going to judge harshly those who turn their back on freedom's cause. The question that we should be asking is why does Joe Biden not want to secure the border? A Homeland Security official says authorities encountered more than 10,000 migrants along the U.S. southern border on Tuesday alone. Senate Republicans say no Ukraine-Israel aid without more focus on immigration policy. Look, I'm someone who's been a uh, strong supporter of military aid for Ukraine, but we have to secure our own border. And by the way, a lot of Senate Democrats, you should ask them, are in agreement on this. They have a base problem that makes it difficult for Chuck Schumer to do anything on the border. So if we feel like, you know, as a minority party in the Senate, we have a little bit of leverage because they really want the other stuff. Senate decorum has dissolved behind closed doors. A classified Ukraine briefing Tuesday turned into a shouting match over the border. Senators leave for the holidays late next week, meaning time to agree and act is running out along with funding. We should not go home for the holidays without passing this urgent supplemental funding bill that would sustain Ukraine's fight against Russian aggression, uh, provide critically needed assistance to Israel, fund humanitarian relief uh, for innocent civilians from Gaza to Ukraine to a dozen other countries, and support our partners and allies in the Indo-Pacific who are um, standing up to Chinese aggression. It's a big and broad package. And it also includes the single largest investment in border security. The Israel Defense Forces appear to be making steady progress in the campaign to defeat the Hamas terrorist group. In a recent operation, troops uncovered of one of the largest stockpiles of weapons found in the Gaza Strip right near school. And today's Jason Perry has the report and takes a closer look at how these military-grade weapons actually get into the Gaza Strip. And a warning, this report contains footage that some viewers may find disturbing. Israel Defense Forces have now uncovered the largest known stockpile of weapons in the Gaza Strip. On Wednesday, the IDF found hundreds of rockets, long-range rockets, drones, and even ready-to-use explosive devices, all found in a residential area near a school and a medical clinic. Now, people may be wondering how these weapons actually get into Gaza, which shares one border with Israel, a smaller border with Egypt, which has restrictions making it difficult for Gazans to enter, and its other border is the sea, which is fortified by the Israeli Navy. According to reports dating back to 2014, weapons are smuggled into Gaza from Egypt through underground tunnels connected to the Gaza Strip. The IDF recently released footage inside the Hamas tunnels of the deputy commander of the Northern Gaza Brigade, Wael Rajab. Here he is meeting with other Hamas commanders inside the tunnels. The ones circled in red have been killed, significantly damaging Hamas's capabilities to operate. But civilians continue to be caught in the crossfire, something sadly expected to happen in urban warfare, this time in Rafah, near Gaza's border with Egypt. We were sitting and three strikes hit at once. We started running. We saw that they hit Omar's house that is full with displaced people. 
Israel has asked residents to evacuate to three designated safe zones in Rafah, but were unable to immediately confirm if the IDF warned residents to evacuate this area. It's a difficult war to fight as Hamas terrorists have embedded themselves with the civilian population, and Israel continues to warn civilians to evacuate, but still some don't leave. However, Israel continues pressing forward to defeat Hamas and also says it's doing everything it can to rescue the remaining 138 hostages in Hamas captivity. These two parents are one of the lucky families who were able to reunite with their daughter who was held hostage by Hamas. Her dad explains the moment she was kidnapped from her neighborhood. From what my daughter said, she was worried that something would happen to the dog if she left her behind. So what she did was she put her under her pajamas jacket uh, when they got into the vehicle and they were driven out. And into the Hamas tunnels she went, still holding her dog. And then when they came out of the tunnel, and they had to climb up a ladder. That's when the Hamas people noticed that this was not a doll, it was a living, breathing dog. And a bit of an argument ensued. Um, and. It was decided to let her keep the dog instead of leave it behind in, in a birdcage. And several weeks later, they were released. Mia said her dog gave her moral support while in captivity. However, Mia also mentioned that she still has two relatives in Hamas captivity. She said everyone needs to do their part to bring all of the hostages home. Jason Perry, NTD News. The U.S. expects Israel to keep its military in Gaza for some time after the war. State Department spokesman Matt Miller says there will need to be a transition period after Israel's combat operations end. Here's Miller yesterday. I don't think it would be in anyone's interest, not Israel's interest, it wouldn't be in the Palestinian people's interest for at the end of major combat operations for Israel to just leave and leave a security vacuum in place uh, where there could be rampant lawlessness inside Gaza uh, and innocent civilians exploited. Miller says the U.S. will not accept a long-term occupation of the Gaza Strip. He also says the U.S. opposes any buffer zone reducing the size of Gaza, but that it's Israel's decision to establish something like that on its own territory. Miller says it's too soon to define how long the conflict will last and too early to put parameters on what happens next. And coming up, the battle to keep Trump's name off the ballot in Colorado heats up as the state's Supreme Court weighs in. Hear what factor a former campaign official says the decision is going to hinge on in the end. Ten Wisconsin alternate electors reach a court settlement over their alleged actions during the 2020 election. We have the details of the settlement and what happens next. An IRS whistleblower puts a spotlight on millions of dollars Hunter Biden allegedly received from a lawyer. A utility company has disconnected Chinese-made batteries from a military base over national security concerns. Find out who raised the concerns and what they relate to after the break. Good to have you back. The Colorado Supreme Court heard arguments yesterday in a case concerning former President Donald Trump. It focused on whether the Constitution's ban on insurrectionists from holding office applies to presidents. 
This is one of several 14th Amendment challenges against Trump's candidacy, which have so far failed to remove him from a single ballot. Legal experts from both sides expect one of the cases to reach the Supreme Court. That could settle the issue before the Republican primaries begin in Iowa in January. A Colorado district judge ruled last month that Trump engaged in an insurrection on January 6th. But she stated that the insurrectionist ban doesn't apply to the presidency based on the text of the 14th Amendment. So let's assess the Colorado Supreme Court's endeavor to determine whether former President Trump should appear on the primary ballot in the state. Please welcome Bart Marcoys, a former presidential campaign policy advisor. Bart, thank you for your time today. Good morning, Kevin. Good morning to you. And this seemed like a long shot challenge from the start, invoking a Civil War era amendment here, trying to ultimately get Trump off the ballot. Do you think that this is going to come down to whether or not J6 is actually determined to be an insurrection or whether state courts have the right to weigh in on this or whether voters would be disenfranchised if his name's on? not on the ballot? I think you're being very polite saying it's a long shot. It's an, uh, you're, you're, you're correct. It's, a, it's an impossible uh, thing for a democracy to c claim to be democratic when it's trying to remove the choice of the voters from the ballot. Uh, the, the, uh, the, the whole idea that you can deprive voters of a chance to vote for the person who is otherwise constitutionally eligible to say you can't vote for that person and we're not even going to put that person on the ballot. That is by its nature undemocratic and this will fail either at the Colorado State Supreme Court, which is not particularly likely, or in the United States Supreme Court. And there is a lot of ambiguity in the 14th Amendment as to how this would actually be enforced, whether it would have to be an act of Congress after they were to determine whether or not someone was actually involved in an insurrection. So the language of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is crucial here as it references officers of the United States. The presidency has been considered an office, but justices are refuting the petitioner's claim by saying it doesn't mention the president explicitly. Does that present an uphill battle for petitioners here in trying to remove his name? Well, yeah, there is an up uphill battle there because in the earlier drafts of the of Section 3, they did specifically include the offices of president and vice president, and they later took it out. It shows intent of the authors of the 14th Amendment. Furthermore, I would dispute the assertion that there's any ambiguity about this. They, it, the section specifically says uh, when it comes up with a with a remedy, it says unless this disability is specifically removed by a two thirds vote of both houses of Congress, thereby vesting in the Congress the the authority to make an extraordinary determination about whether that determination is whether to remove a disability, and it implies that a two thirds vote of each house of the Congress would be necessary to make any kind of extraordinary finding under this section. Well, thank you for presenting that information about those other drafts showing the author's intent. I'll have to look more into that. Trump's never been convicted of an insurrection. He's never even been charged with it. Do you think that is going to matter here? I think that's the central point of it all. That to call to call 
January sixth, a, a a an insurrection is just a twisted parody of language. It's somebody looking for an excuse to deny people the right to vote for the person of their choice and say, hmm, how can we do this? Wait, this says anyone participating in an insurrection is ineligible, so we're going to start calling January 6th an insurrection. And the left and the, their allies in the media started saying that January 6th was an insurrection, simply making that assertion. Well, it wasn't. It wasn't an insurrection. The whole 14th Amendment was written about the Civil War. When they were talking about an insurrection, they were talking specifically about the Civil War or any repeat attempt to secede from the United States or to negate the the authority of the United States government to the the, the, the right of the United States government to exercise authority over them. They the uh, protests through the year of uh, the the uh, Black Lives Matter, the the George Floyd riots, those could be possibly characterized as insurrections when they surround a federal courthouse and they they barricade the doors and try to set it on fire, try to set police departments on fire. Those could be feasibly called insurrections, but having a bunch of uh, people walk through the Capitol at the invitation of the Capitol Police and having 20 of them uh, engage in some violent acts, that's not an insurrection. That's a protest that got out of hand. Bart, I know there are many Americans who do agree with your view, and at the same time, like you mentioned, there were some individuals who were sentenced based on seditious conspiracy (laughs) involving that event. And of course, there are many people there that were just legitimately raising concerns about the election. Bart Marquois, former presidential campaign policy advisor, thank you again for your time. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Six alternate electors for former President Trump are facing charges in Nevada. This makes Nevada the third state to charge Trump electors following the 2020 election after Michigan and Georgia. The six electors face two felony charges. They could face up to nine years in prison. Nevada Attorney General Aaron Ford, a Democrat, launched the investigation this fall. He called the electors' actions an effort to undermine faith in our democracy. Following the 2020 elections, alternate electors met in seven states that eventually went to Joe Biden. And an IRS whistleblower says first son Hunter Biden got nearly $5 million from a lawyer. IRS agent Joseph Ziegler shared the numbers with lawmakers during House testimony on Tuesday. And today's Daniel Monahan has more. The lawyer's name is Kevin Morris, an entertainment lawyer. It was previously reported that Morris paid about $2 million in Hunter Biden back taxes and purchased some of his artwork. Ziegler says Biden received the money from Morris over a three-year period. Ziegler investigated Hunter Biden's taxes for five years before being removed from the case earlier this year. Ziegler testified Tuesday that some of the money Hunter Biden received from Morris was described as loans a practice he says Hunter Biden uses to avoid taxes. Ziegler says the investigation is not a personal attack against Hunter Biden, but a call for change. What we are presenting in our whistleblower complaints should scare and give concern to every American, regardless of your political affiliation. 
Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer said Tuesday that Hunter Biden company Alaska PC made direct monthly payments to Joe Biden. And that Chinese and other foreign entities funneled millions of dollars into the company, with some of the money landing in Joe Biden's bank account. These direct monthly payments to Joe Biden are part of a pattern revealing Joe Biden knew about, participated in, and benefited from his family's shady business schemes. Congressman Tim Burchett says with over $30 million flowing through the Biden family, it's just a matter of connecting the dots. And you have to ask yourself, what were they buying with Hunter Biden? And why was Hunter Biden giving his father these checks? President Joe Biden on Wednesday was asked about why he interacted with so many of his son Hunter's business associates. I'm not going to comment that I did not. And it's just a bunch of lies. You didn't interact with many of their lies. business associates? I did not. They're what? lies. Representative Daniel Goldman pushed back on the allegations of any wrongdoing on the part of President Biden. There is no evidence, and they keep coming up with misleading, cherry-picked misinformation to try to tarnish Joe Biden. All of this is occurring in the backdrop of a dispute over Hunter Biden's possible appearance before Congress next week. House Republicans want to question the first son in private, but Hunter Biden is demanding a public hearing. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Coming up, New Mexico's Attorney General is suing Meta and, C and CEO Mark Zuckerberg. Hear more about the accusations involving child sex abuse material. An Apple executive and major innovator of the iPhone is leaving the company. We sit down with the host of NTD Business to discuss the details of this, so stick around. Good to have you back. And here with us now is NTD business host Don Ma to discuss the New Mexico Attorney General's lawsuit against Meta this morning. The AG alleges that Facebook and Instagram fail to protect underage users from exposure to child sexual abuse material. Don, please tell us about the suit. Yeah, so Attorney General Raul Torres uh, said in a statement that their investigation into Meta's social media platforms demonstrates that it's actually not safe for children. This space uh, is is actually not a good place for children. He said that it's prime uh, locations for predators to trade child pornography and solicit minors for sex. So uh, it's it's uh, rather serious here, the allegations. The civil lawsuit filed uh, was on late Tuesday and uh, it's against uh, meta platforms, um, but it also names CEO Mark Zuckerberg as a defendant in addition uh, to the platform. Um, he also said that the suit, uh, uh, in the suit that uh, Meta harms children and teenagers through the addictive design of its platform as well. Uh, it degrades users' mental health, their self-worth uh, and physical safety. Um, so he says that uh, Zuckerberg and other Meta executives are actually aware of this situation, but have failed uh, to uh, take extra measures to prevent this from happening. Um, he's accusing Meta of uh, prioritizing engagement and ad revenue over the safety of children. Mm. Really is 
has been time to finally take a look at that, considering the allegations have been out for months. So what are now the specific methods of investigation? Yeah, uh, so investigators in New Mexico created decoy accounts of children uh, that are 14 years and younger. So these are decoy accounts. And Torres's office said that uh, uh, they were served uh, sexually explicit images even when the child expressed no interest in them. Uh, state prosecutors claim that uh, Meta, Meta let dozens of adults find, contact even, and encourage children to provide sex sexually explicit material. Um, the accounts also received recommendations uh, to join actually unmoderated Facebook groups uh, devoted to these types of things. Um, and it added that Meta also let its users find, share, and sell even enormous volumes of child pornography. Uh, I mean, uh, Meta argues though that they do have uh, child protection systems in place. Uh, they're saying that in one month alone, they have dis disabled millions of accounts uh, in, in, this, uh, in this vein. Um, so, I mean, they're saying they're, they have protections in place, but uh, the other side is saying that it's not enough. Yeah, those are some serious allegations. And yeah, Reuters reports that it was August. In one month, Meta actually disabled about half a million accounts because they were the ones that were violating these type of protocols here. So, Don, do you have anything else for us? Yeah. Um, a major innovator at Apple is leaving the company. This is according to Bloomberg News. Steve Holtelling is uh, named on multiple patents related to the iPhone and iPad's touchscreen features. He's also one of the inventors of Apple devices uh, touch ID feature. And as well, Comcast is raising prices for its Xfinity program. The media giant said yesterday, uh, Xfinity provides video, broadband, and phone services. It's looking to offset high programming costs. Bloomberg News reported that uh, average subscribers will see a 3% price increase. The price for internet-only service will be increased by $3 a month. Verizon and AT&T also raised prices earlier this year. As always, a lot going on in the business world. Thank you so much, Don Ma, host yeah. of NTD Business. Thank you. Thank you. So up next, we take a look at a California dad who is showing his sons that kindness goes a long way through leading by example. Stay with us. Welcome back. Holiday season is all about family. That's right. Family is important, but what's more, showing kindness and offering a helping hand can, can go a long way. A loving dad and his three young sons are a glowing example of this. They're showing the world the true impact of running regular errands for mom. Let's take a look. Little acts of kindness can go a long way. Brooklyn Powell and her husband Jonathan live in their hometown of Riverside, California. The family has four kids, three boys and one baby girl. Little did Jonathan know that one simple act of kindness would become a game changer for the family. The simple gesture involved merely running a couple of errands for his wife. And I knew she doesn't like to deal with anything car related. Um, and so I said, hey, you know what boys, here's what we're gonna do. Every Saturday morning, we are gonna wake up early and we're gonna make it simple. We're gonna clean mom's car, we're gonna get it fueled up, and we're gonna get it washed for it. The gesture filled Brooklyn with joy, leaving her feeling loved and appreciated. But not only did it relieve her stress, but also served as a valuable lesson for their three young boys. Well, the reason it started was is we would, me and the boys would notice how much mom was doing. 
she was doing she was doing all the dishes and all the laundry and so i figured man i gotta teach these boys a way to serve mom in, in some form and as time went on the gestures continued as they say kindness is contagious the boys also enjoyed making their mom happy Our goal as a husband and wife is that when they move on and move out of our house is that they want to come back home and spend time with us and so for us, it's just keeping a tight knit and, and earning their trust and realizing that just as much as they, the hard work we put in, we expect them to put in the same amount of hard work. <laughs> just instilling our family values into them. Teaching their kids that love involves patience and kindness while being firm, setting healthy boundaries and being present. It's like we, we make mistakes, we have bad attitudes, we mess up, we feel sad sometimes or overwhelmed. And so just realizing that kids are exactly that too. And so we can give them that grace and that space to feel those emotions and just learn how to handle conflict. Things haven't always been this balanced for the family, as Jonathan previously experienced health troubles and had a demanding job. But Brooklyn says a small change in lifestyle can make a big difference. We have come so far in the last seven years. And like, we all think we're so far from like our dreams or where we want to be. <laughs> when in reality, we're not that far. It just takes like some simple changes that ultimately compounded over time lead to big changes. The couple hopes that by instilling positive traits and values into their children's lives, it will inspire them to take these values into future marriages with their wives. In the future, yes, I will teach them to do the dishes and mow the lawn and all that kind of stuff. But for now, while they're young, it's an easy way for them to feel like they're giving back and just to be, just to realize that they're all part of the family. Brooklyn says that their family experience can serve as a reminder for guys to show love for their wives. And for the ladies, she said, communication with their husband can be a game changer. Wow, being a parent of four is must be so hard and really busy. So it's really great that they, they're they taking this initiative and teaching their kids how to support each other. That can go a long way. Yeah, and it looks like they have a lot of fun with that kid's hair in the vacuum like that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Saw that. That comes with it, too, yeah. And of course, having a, especially as three boys, um, having a dad that can be a role model like this, that's great. Yeah, and well, considering how much moms do for families, those small acts of kindness are really well deserved. Mm. Think about it. Moms manage the family, the household, the finances, they cook, they do laundry. It's just so much. They rear children. Mm, exactly. Yeah, I'm sure she must appreciate it a lot. All right, we are heading to a one-minute break here, but we will be right back, so stay with us. There are real consequences to controlled media. And NTD's founders know them firsthand. Our freedom of thought is the price. This is the lesson that guides us in everything we do. So there's the tear gas there. We know the value of a free society. And we take seriously the responsibility to preserve it. We are NTD. Good morning, welcome to NTD. Good morning, here are our top stories. Israel pushes on with its offensive, saying it uncovered one of the largest terrorist weapon caches in Gaza yet. 
Final Republicans seeking 2024 nominations square off over who's fit to take the mantle from former President Trump. We have takeaways and highlights from last night's combative primary debate. Former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is leaving Congress entirely. The longtime representative will say goodbye to the House in just a few weeks. Meta is being sued by the New Mexico Attorney General over their alleged enabling of child sex abuse material. We get the details from the host of NTD Business. Santa Claus has come to town right in the middle of a chaotic traffic jam, bringing holiday cheer to drivers. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome everyone. Today is Thursday, December 7th, and in today's top news, Republican presidential candidates hoping to take on former President Trump battled it out in the fourth primary debate last night. News Nation hosted the event at Tuscaloosa's University of Alabama. The four GOP hopefuls told voters why they should be considered a viable alternative to the dominant frontrunner. Former President Trump skipped the event and used his own means to reach voters. He attended a fundraiser in Florida for his super PAC instead. One main theme contested was policy. Iowa's caucuses are less than six weeks out, and the narrowing field gave those left on stage more room to speak and scrutinize each other. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg has takeaways from the GOP debate. GOP candidates vying for second place in the polls tried to chip away at the no-show frontrunner's lead in their appeals to voters Wednesday night. The fact of the matter is, he is unfit to be president. Rivals weren't taking any chances with former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley on a recent hot streak. Candidates up here like Nikki Haley, she caves anytime the left comes after. Nikki Haley, who thinks the government should identify every one of those individuals with an ID, that is not freedom, that is fascism, and she should come nowhere near the levers of power, let alone the White House. Right, and I love all the attention, fellas. Thank you for that. DeSantis dug in on Chinese regime connections, accusing Haley of being the top ranked among governors when it came to bringing the Chinese Communist Party into a state. Her donors, these Wall Street liberal donors, they make money in China. They are not going to let her be tough on China, and she will cave to the donors. She will not stand up for you. First of all, he's mad because those Wall Street donors used to support him, and now they support me. Issues ranging from border security, immigration, foreign affairs, COVID vaccines, and election integrity were also hit on throughout the night, not shy of personal attacks. Nikki, I don't have a woman problem. You have a corruption problem. And I think that that's what people need to know. Haley said as UN ambassador, she was hands-on when it comes to China and Taiwan. She said the way to keep the Chinese regime away from them is to let them know there'll be hell to pay by winning the war in Ukraine. Chris, your version of foreign policy experience was closing a bridge from New Jersey to New York. Yeah. So do everybody a favor, just walk yourself yeah. off that stage, enjoy a nice meal, yeah. and get the hell out of this yeah, race. Vivek Ramaswamy led speaking time once again in the News Nation hosted debate, defending former President Trump in his absence. All three of them have been licking Donald Trump's boots for years for money and endorsements. <laughs> Contender Chris Christie claiming to be the only one brave enough to chastise Trump. This is an angry, bitter man who now wants to be back as president because he wants to exact retribution. The fifth guy who doesn't have the guts to show up and stand here 
The battle over electability will continue, with Trump currently leading most opinion polls by more than 40 percentage points. Ramaswamy is calling for the fifth debate to be held on X. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Shifting our focus to Israel, the Israel Defense Forces appear to be making steady progress in the campaign to defeat the Hamas terrorist group. In a recent operation, troops uncovered of one of the largest stockpiles of weapons found in the Gaza Strip right near a school. NTD's Jason Perry has the report and takes a closer look at how these military-grade weapons actually get into the Gaza Strip. And a warning, this report contains footage that some viewers may find disturbing. Israel Defense Forces have now uncovered the largest known stockpile of weapons in the Gaza Strip. On Wednesday, the IDF found hundreds of rockets, long-range rockets, drones, and even ready-to-use explosive devices, all found in a residential area near a school and a medical clinic. Now, people may be wondering how these weapons actually get into Gaza, which shares one border with Israel, a smaller border with Egypt, which has restrictions making it difficult for Gazans to enter, and its other border is the sea, which is fortified by the Israeli Navy. According to reports dating back to 2014, weapons are smuggled into Gaza from Egypt through underground tunnels connected to the Gaza Strip. The IDF recently released footage inside the Hamas tunnels of the deputy commander of the Northern Gaza Brigade, Wael Rajab. Here he is meeting with other Hamas commanders inside the tunnels. The ones circled in red have been killed, significantly damaging Hamas's capabilities to operate. But civilians continue to be caught in the crossfire, something sadly expected to happen in urban warfare, this time in Rafah, near Gaza's border with Egypt. We were sitting and three strikes hit at once. We started running. We saw that they hit Omar's house that is full with displaced people. Israel has asked residents to evacuate to three designated safe zones in Rafah, but were unable to immediately confirm if the IDF warned residents to evacuate this area. It's a difficult war to fight as Hamas terrorists have embedded themselves with the civilian population. And Israel continues to warn civilians to evacuate, but still some don't leave. However, Israel continues pressing forward to defeat Hamas and also says it's doing everything it can to rescue the remaining 138 hostages in Hamas captivity. These two parents are one of the lucky families who were able to reunite with their daughter who was held hostage by Hamas. Her dad explains the moment she was kidnapped from her neighborhood. From what my daughter said, she was worried that something would happen to the dog if she left her behind. So what she did was she put her under her pajamas jacket uh, when they got into the vehicle and they were driven out. And into the Hamas tunnels she went, still holding her dog. And then when they came out of the tunnel, they had to climb up a ladder. That's when the Hamas people noticed that this was not a doll, it was a living, breathing dog. And a bit of an argument ensued, um, and it was decided to let her keep the dog instead of leave it behind in, in a birdcage. And several weeks later, they were released. Mia said her dog gave her moral support while in captivity. However, Mia also mentioned that she still has two relatives in Hamas captivity. She said everyone needs to do their part to bring all of the hostages home. Jason Perry, 
in TD News. A utility company has disconnected China-made batteries from a Marine Corps base. That after several lawmakers expressed concerns that the devices posed a threat to national security. And today's cost Temenas has the story. Lawmakers from both parties said the U.S. is at risk of being critically reliant on its top rival China for the supply of the batteries. After it emerged that utility company Duke Energy used the batteries at Camp Lejeune Marine Corps Base in North Carolina. The lawmakers, led by Florida Senator Marco Rubio, added the storage batteries may be subject to cyber vulnerabilities and put energy grids at risk. Rubio wrote to Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin last week, asking him to immediately reverse the installation of the batteries. The devices are manufactured by Contemporary Amperex Technology Limited, or CATL, a Chinese company with reported ties to the Chinese Communist Party. Congressman Mike Gallagher told Fox News that companies involved in the CCP's human rights abuses should not be allowed to build critical infrastructure for the U.S. military. Duke Energy issued a statement to Reuters saying the batteries have been disconnected following the concerns, but added the system was designed with security in mind and the batteries were not connected in any way to Camp Lejeune's network or other systems. Although the company did not specify when the batteries were disconnected, nor how long they'd be offline. In another statement to Reuters, CATL called the accusations false and misleading. Adding its energy storage products sold to the U.S. past security reviews and were not equipped with communication interfaces. CATL further announced deals to supply batteries for several commercial energy projects throughout the U.S including in Texas and Nevada. Deployment of such utility-scale devices is increasing on a rapid scale in the U.S. as sources of renewable energy come online. Much of this technology will likely originate from manufacturers in China, who stand to benefit from U.S. renewable energy tax credits. Cost MNS, NTD News. Up next, a deadly shooting at Las Vegas University leaves three students dead. Stay tuned to get the latest details. The Senate blocks an aid bill for Israel and Ukraine as the deadline to pass it approaches. What's causing the disagreement between the parties? Congressman Kevin McCarthy announces his plan to resign from the House. Find out what he aims to do after leaving Congress. A traffic coordinator in the Philippines spreads holiday cheer, directing traffic in a bright red and well-known suit. Get that story coming up. Good morning and thank you for staying with us. Money is the talk of Washington this week, specifically funding to provide more aid for Israel and Ukraine. On Monday, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said we're running out of money and we're nearly out of time. And yesterday, President Biden and the Senate weighed in. 
While Ukraine continues its fight against Russia, in Washington, Congress is fighting itself, with lawmakers failing to agree on how to extend aid to Ukraine. The Ukrainians have had to start rationing their munitions, as any sensible army would, because they simply don't want to run out. $111 billion Congress already sent Ukraine is nearly gone. The Biden administration proposes sending about another $60 billion to Ukraine and $46 billion more to Israel, Taiwan, and operations at the U.S. southern border. We can't let Putin win. President Biden backed the bill hours before a procedural Senate vote, criticizing the Republicans expected to sink it. History's going to judge harshly those who turn their back on freedom's cause. The question that we should be asking is why does Joe Biden not want to secure the border? A Homeland Security official says authorities encountered more than 10,000 migrants along the U.S. southern border on Tuesday alone. Senate Republicans say no Ukraine-Israel aid without more focus on immigration policy. Look, I'm someone who's been a uh, strong supporter of military aid for Ukraine, but we have to secure our own border. And by the way, a lot of Senate Democrats, you should ask them, are in agreement on this. They have a base problem that makes it difficult for Chuck Schumer to do anything on the border. So if we feel like, you know, as a minority party in the Senate, we have a little bit of leverage because they really want the other stuff. Senate decorum has dissolved behind closed doors. A classified Ukraine briefing Tuesday turned into a shouting match over the border. Senators leave for the holidays late next week, meaning time to agree and act is running out along with funding. We should not go home for the holidays without passing this urgent supplemental funding bill that would sustain Ukraine's fight against Russian aggression, uh, provide critically needed assistance to Israel, fund humanitarian relief uh, for innocent civilians from Gaza to Ukraine to a dozen other countries, and support our partners and allies in the Indo-Pacific who are um, standing up to Chinese aggression. It's a big and broad package. And it also includes the single largest investment in border security. Longtime, con longtime Congressman Kevin McCarthy is leaving the House of Representatives in just a few weeks. The former speaker says he'll still help where he can, but from the sidelines. Here's what the Republican congressman had to say in his resignation announcement yesterday. While well, I'll be departing the House at the end of this year, I will never, ever give up fighting for this country that I love so much. We were willing to risk it all, no matter the odds, no matter the personal cost. McCarthy did not say why he's leaving Congress at the end of the year, but he did say he would continue working on his passion in a new area by leading the next generation of leaders, as he calls it, as well as helping the Republican Party recruit and fundraise. McCarthy's move comes just two months after he was ousted from his speakership position because there were Republicans who were unhappy that he worked with Democrats on a temporary government funding bill. That's an issue that is still very much alive and that current Speaker Mike Johnson is now facing. With McCarthy leaving, the slim Republican majority is getting even slimmer. That's after former Congressman George Santos was just expelled last week because of allegations he faces. It is expected that a Republican will take McCarthy's seat because he does represent a very bright red district in California. But it will take a few months to fill that slot after California's governor calls for a special election. The House voted yesterday to block a proposed rule by the Environmental Protection Agency. The EPA rule would have effectively mandated that most cars produced in the U.S. be fully electric by 2032. 
Republicans have rallied against the proposed standards, which they say are unrealistic and could undermine consumer freedom, as well as increase U.S. dependence on China. Almost 90% of rare earth minerals used to create electric vehicles are sourced from China. Despite its passage by the House, the legislation seems unlikely to pass in the Senate, where Democrats hold the majority. And even if it does pass a Senate vote, President Biden has promised to veto the bill. And some tragic news this morning. A gunman killed three people and wounded a fourth yesterday at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Authorities say he was then killed in a shootout with police. Reports of shots fired sent police swarming into the campus while students and professors barricaded themselves inside classrooms and dorm rooms. After the 911 call, police rushed to the scene outside the dorms at Beam Hall, where the shooter was. Across the street at a student union meeting, some students received warning information via social media and went into lockdown mode. Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department Sheriff Kevin McMail said the quick actions of two officers probably saved others' lives. Police led the other students to safety. Authorities say the motive for the shootings is unknown at this time. Sources have told multiple media that the shooter was a college professor. Entity couldn't independently verify the reports and our hearts go out to the victims and their families. Yes. And we're heading now to business news because earlier we spoke to the host of NTD Business, Don Ma, to talk about the latest lawsuit against Meta. Yeah, and the company's new features for its social media and messaging platforms. The civil lawsuit filed uh, was on late Tuesday and uh, it's against Meta platforms, um, but it also names CEO Mark Zuckerberg as a defendant in addition uh, to the platform. Um, he also said that the suit, uh, uh, in the suit that uh, Meta harms children and teenagers through the addictive design of its platform as well. Uh, it degrades users' mental health, their self-worth uh, and physical safety. Um, so he says that uh, Zuckerberg and other Meta executives are actually aware of this situation but have failed uh, to uh, take extra measures to prevent this from happening. Um, he's accusing Meta of uh, prioritizing engagement and ad revenue over the safety of children. Mm. Really is, has been time to finally take a look at that considering the allegations have been out for months. So what are now the specific methods of investigation? Yeah, uh, so investigators in New Mexico created decoy accounts of children uh, that are 14 years and younger. So these are decoy accounts. And Torres's office said that uh, uh, they were served uh, sexually explicit images, even when the child expressed no interest in them. Uh, state prosecutors claimed that uh, Meta, Meta let dozens of adults find contact even and encourage children to provide se sexually explicit material. Um, the accounts also received recommendations uh, to join actually unmoderated Facebook Book groups uh, devoted to these types of things. Um, and it added that Meta also let its users find, share, and sell even enormous volumes of child pornography. As always, a lot going on in the business world. Thank you so much, Don Ma, host yeah. of Entity Business. Thank you. Thank you. Producer and writer Norman Lear died Tuesday at the age of 101, his family said.
He was known for his hit comedies such as All in the Family, Sanford and Son, and Maud. Lear was involved in over 100 shows spanning his career. Here's a quick look back. Legendary television writer and producer Norman Lear, whose groundbreaking hit comedies including All in the Family and The Jeffersons introduced political and social commentary to the American sitcom, died on Tuesday at the age of 101. His family said in a Facebook post on Wednesday that Lear died at his Los Angeles home of natural causes, adding that he was, quote, surrounded by his family as we told stories and sang songs until the very end. Every split second of my life got me here. And every split second of yours also. So we better treasure the moment while we're living it. In interviews with Reuters over the last decade, Lear often stressed the importance of living for the moment. You look at these people and their long careers, you've watched them having fun being alive for, always. I mean, that, if there's a secret, and people always ask, what's the secret? If there's a secret, it is living in the moment and enjoying it. One of the most influential people in television, Lear won six Emmy Awards for his work, which he continued well into his 90s. At one point in the 1970s, Lear had eight shows on the air with an estimated 120 million viewers, according to Time magazine. There's no place on earth I'd rather be than here this moment. And I have a telephone call. <laughs> his online obituary said Lear, who was convinced laughter had lengthened his own life, used humor to enrich the lives of others. And to round up this morning, we have some fun stories for you, starting off with Santa. Santa Claus has come to town right in the middle of chaotic traffic jams just south of Manila, bringing holiday cheer to drivers in a bright red suit. The Filipino traffic coordinator puts smiles on motorists' faces every morning in one of the region's most traffic-prone intersections. He has a dance of his own, twirling and kneeling while pointing to direct traffic. He says motorists show their appreciation by smiling waving and giving him thumbs up. He's got some moves there. Maybe he thought it was a reindeer crossing. Oh, but listen, I don't think, do you know how warm it is there at this time of year? That's crazy. And he's moving like, look at him. Yeah, he's going to have to pull out some magic to get some snow there in the Philippines. <laughs> yeah. And uh, moving on, everyone loves to save money, especially during the holiday season. Starbucks is offering half-off drinks every Thursday this month. A coupon for a 50% off drink will be available to reward members in the Starbucks app each week. Customers are allowed one discounted drink each Thursday from noon until 6 p.m. Starbucks calls the promotion Festive Thursdays. I just, I know a couple here that do have the rewards program, so I think this is welcome news. We have one right across the street, but I guess that's not, that's super irrelevant for you. You don't drink coffee. No, maybe if it's decaf, I'll, mm. I'll consider it. Or do you drink tea? I do drink tea. Mm. Yeah, there you go. There is another option for you there. Again, just clove and cinnamon and spiced tea, not <laughs> the, see. you know, caffeine tea. Okay, so carefully chosen. Maybe there is something in there for you. All right, we have to wrap up our show now, but we'll keep you updated with the latest information. Stay tuned for our News Today broadcast at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.